Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tonight. I continue the story, The Wind in the Willows, by Kenneth Graham. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Footsteps fell on his ear, and the figure of one that walked somewhat wearily came into view, and he saw that it was a rat and a very dusty one. The wayfarer, as he reached him, saluted with a gesture of courtesy that had something foreign about it, hesitated a moment, 
then with a pleasant smile, turned from the track and sat down by his side in the cool herbage. He seemed tired, and the rat let him rest unquestioned, understanding something of what was in his thoughts, knowing, too, the value all animals attach at times to mere silent companionship when the weary muscles slacken and the mind marks time. The wayfarer was lean and keen-featured and somewhat bowed at the shoulders. His paws were thin and long, his eyes much wrinkled at the corners, and he wore small gold earrings in his neatly set, well-shaped ears. His knitted jersey was of a faded blue. His breeches, patched and stained, were based on a blue foundation, and his small belongings that he carried were tied up in a blue cotton handkerchief. When he had rested a while, the stranger sighed, snuffed the air, and looked about him. That was clover, that warm whiff on the breeze, he remarked. And those are cows we hear cropping the grass behind us and blowing softly between mouthfuls. There is a sound of distant reapers, and yonder rises a blue line of cottage smoke against the woodland. The river runs somewhere close by, for I hear the call of a moorhen, and I see by your build that you are a freshwater mariner. Everything seems asleep and yet going on all the time. It is a goodly life that you lead, friend, no doubt the best in the world, if only you are strong enough to lead it. Yes, it's the life, the only life to live, responded the water rat dreamily, and without his usual wholehearted conviction. I did not say exactly that, replied the stranger cautiously, but no doubt it's the best. I've tried it, and I know. And because I've tried it, six months of it, and know it's the best, here I am, footsore and hungry, tramping away from it, tramping southwards, following the old call, back to the old life, the life which is mine and which will not let me go. Is this then yet another of them? mused the rat. And where have you just come from? he asked. He hardly dared to ask where he was bound for. He seemed to know the answer only too well. Nice little farm, replied the wayfarer briefly. Up along in that direction, he nodded northwards. Never mind about that. I had everything I could want, everything I had any right to expect of life and more, and here I am. Glad to be here all the same, though. Glad to be here. So many miles further on the road, so many hours nearer to my heart's desire. His shining eyes held fast to the horizon, and he seemed to be listening for some sound that was wanting from that inland anchorage, vocal as it was with the cheerful music of pasturage and farmyard. You're not one of us, said the water rat, nor yet a farmer, nor even, I should judge, of this country. Right, replied the stranger. I'm a seafaring rat, I am, and the port I originally hail from is Constantinople, though I'm a sort of foreigner there too, in a manner of speaking. You will have heard of Constantinople, friend, a fair city and an ancient and glorious one, and you may have heard too of Sigurd, king of Norway, and how he sailed thither with sixty ships, and how he and his men rode up through streets all canopied in their honor with purple and gold, 
and how the emperor and empress came down and banqueted with him on board his ship. When Sigurd went home, many of his northmen remained behind and entered the emperor's bodyguard. And my ancestor, a Norwegian-born, stayed behind too. With the ships that Sigurd gave the emperor, seafarers we have ever been, and no wonder. As for me, the city of my birth is no more my home than any pleasant port between there and the London River. I know them all, and they know me. Set me down on any of their quays or foreshores, and I am home again. I suppose you go great voyages, said the water rat, with growing interest. Months and months out of sight of land, and provisions running short, and allowance as to water, and your mind communing with the mighty ocean, and all that sort of thing. By no means, said the sea rat, frankly, such a life as you describe would not suit me at all. I'm in the coasting trade, and rarely out of sight of land. It's the jolly times on shore that appeal to me, as much as any seafaring. Oh, those southern seaports, the smell of them, the riding lights of night, the glamour. Well, perhaps you've chosen the better way, said the water rat, but rather doubtfully. Tell me something of your coasting, then, if you've a mind to, and what sort of harvest an animal of spirit might hope to bring home from it to warm his latter days with gallant memories by the fireside. For my life, I confess to you, feels to me today somewhat narrow and circumscribed. My last voyage, began the sea rat, that landed me eventually in this country, bound with high hopes for my inland farm, will serve as a good example of any of them, and indeed is an epitome of my highly coloured life. Family troubles, as usual, began it, the domestic storm cone was hoisted, and I shipped myself on board a small trading vessel bound from Constantinople by classic seas whose every wave throbs with a deathless memory to the Grecian islands and the Levant. Those were golden days and balmy nights. In and out of harbour all the time, old friends everywhere, sleeping in some cool temple or ruined cistern during the heat of the day feasting and song after sundown under great stars set in a velvet sky. Thence we turned and coasted up the Adriatic, its shores swimming in an atmosphere of amber, rose and aquamarine. We lay in wide, landlocked harbours. We roamed through ancient and noble cities until at last, one morning, as the sun rose royally behind us, we rode into Venice down a path of gold. Oh, Venice is a fine city, wherein a rat can wonder at his ease and take his pleasure. Or when, weary of wondering, can sit at the edge of the Grand Canal at night, feasting with his friends, when the air is full of music and the sky full of stars, and the lights flash and shimmer on the polished steel prows of the swaying gondolas, packed so that you could walk across the canal on them from side to side. And then the food. Do you like shellfish? Well, well, we won't linger over that now. He was silent for a time, and the water rat, silent too and enthralled, floated on dream canals and heard a phantom song pealing high between vaporous, grey wave-lapped walls. Southwards, we sailed again at last, continued the sea rat, coasting down the Italian shore, 
till finally we made Palermo, and there I quitted for a long, happy spell on shore. I never stick too long to one ship. One gets narrow-minded and prejudiced. Besides, Sicily is one of my happy hunting grounds. I know everybody there, and their ways just suit me. I spent many jolly weeks in the island, staying with friends upcountry. When I grew restless again, I took advantage of a ship that was trading to Sardinia and Corsica. I'm very glad I was to feel the fresh breeze and the sea spray in my face once more. But isn't it very hot and stuffy down in the hold, I think you call it, asked the water rat. The seafarer looked at him with the suspicion of a wink. I'm an old hand, he remarked with much simplicity. The captain's cabin's good enough for me. It's a hard life by all accounts, murmured the rat, sunk in deep thought. For the crew it is, replied the seafarer gravely, again with the ghost of a wink. From Corsica, he went on. I made use of a ship that was taking wine to the mainland. We made a lasso in the evening, lay to, hauled up our wine casts, and hove them overboard, tied to one another by a long line. Then the crew took the boats and rowed shorewards, singing as they went, and drawing after them the long bobbing procession of casks, like a mile of porpoises. On the sands they had horses waiting, which dragged the casks up the steep street of the little town, with a fine rush and clatter and scramble. When the last cask was in, we went and refreshed and rested, and sat late into the night, talking with our friends. And next morning I took to the great olive woods for a spell and a rest. For now I had done with islands for the time, and ports and shipping were plentiful. So I led a lazy life among the peasants, lying and watching them work, or stretched high on the hillside with the blue Mediterranean far below me. And so at length, by easy stages, and partly on foot, partly by sea, to Marseille, and the meeting of old shipmates, and the visiting of great ocean-bound vessels and feasting once more. Talk of shellfish, why sometimes I dream of the shellfish, of Marseille, and wake up crying. That reminds me, said the polite water rat, you happen to mention that you are hungry, and I ought to have spoken earlier. Of course you will stop and take your midday meal with me. My hole is close by, it is some time past noon, and you're very welcome to whatever there is. Now I call that kind and brotherly of you, said the sea rat. I was indeed hungry when I sat down, and ever since I inadvertently happened to mention shellfish, my pangs have been extreme. But couldn't you fetch it along out here? I'm none too fond of going under hatches, unless I'm obliged to. And then, while we eat, tell you more concerning my voyages and the pleasant life I lead. At least it is very pleasant to me and by your attention, I judge it commends itself to you. Whereas if we go indoors, it is a hundred to one that I shall presently fall asleep. That is indeed an excellent suggestion, said the water rat, and hurried off home. There he got out the luncheon basket and packed a simple meal, in which, remembering the stranger's origin and preferences, he took care to include a yard of long French bread a sausage out of which the garlic sang, some cheese which lay down and cried, and a long-necked, straw-covered flask wherein lay bottled sunshine shed 
and garnered on far southern slopes. Thus laden, he returned with all speed and blushed for pleasure at the old seaman's commendations of his taste and judgment, as together they unpacked the basket and laid out the contents on the grass by the roadside. The sea rat, as soon as his hunger was somewhat assuaged, continued the history of his latest voyage, conducting his simple harer from port to port of Spain, landing him at Lisbon, Oporto, and Bordeaux, introducing him to the pleasant harbours of Cornwall and Devon, and so up the channel to that final quayside, where, landing after winds long contrary, storm-driven and weather-beaten, he had caught the first magical hints and heraldings of another spring, and fired by these, had sped on a long tramp inland, hungry for the experiment of life on some quiet farmstead, very far from the weary beating of any sea. Spellbound and quivering with excitement, the water rat followed the adventurer league by league, over stormy bays, through crowded roadsteads, across harbour bars on a racing tide, up winding rivers that hid their busy little towns round a sudden turn, and left him with a regretful sigh planted at his dull inland farm, about which he desired to hear nothing. By this time, their meal was over, and the seafarer, refreshed and straightened, his voice more vibrant, his eye lit with a brightness that seemed caught from some faraway sea beacon, filled his glass with the red and glowing vintage of the south, and leaning towards the water rat, compelled his gaze and held him, body and soul, while he talked. Those eyes were of the changing foam-streaked grey-green of leaping northern seas. In the glass shone a hot ruby that seemed the very heart of the south, beating for him who had courage to respond to its pulsation. The twin lights, the shifting grey and the steadfast red, mastered the water rat and held him bound, fascinated, powerless. The quiet world outside their rays receded far away and ceased to be. And the talk, the wonderful talk flowed on. Or was it speech entirely? Or did it pass at times into song, chanty of the sailors weighing the dripping anchor, sonorous hum of the shrouds in a tearing northeaster, ballard of the fishermen, hauling his nets at sundown against an apricot sky, chords of guitar and mandolin from gondola or caique. Did it change into the cry of the wind, plaintive at first, angrily shrill as it freshened, rising to a tearing whistle, sinking to a musical trickle of air from the leech of the bellying sail? All these sounds the spellbound listener seemed to hear, and with them the hungry complaint of the gulls and the sea mews, the soft thunder of the breaking wave, the cry of the protesting shingle. Back into speech again it passed, and with beating heart he was following the adventures of a dozen seaports, the fights, the escapes, the rallies, the comradeships, the gallant undertakings, or he searched islands for treasure, fished in still lagoons, and dozed day-long on warm white sand. Of deep-sea fishings he heard tell, and mighty silver gatherings of the mile-long net, of sudden perils, noise of breakers in a moonless night, or the tall boughs of the great liner taking shape overhead through the fog, of the merry homecoming, the headland rounded, the harbour lights opened out, 
the group seen dimly on the quay. The cherry hail, the splash of the hawser, the trudge up the steep little street towards the comforting glow of red curtained windows. Lastly, in his waking dream, it seemed to him that the adventurer had risen to his feet, but was still speaking, still holding him fast with his sea-gray eyes. And now, he was softly saying, I take to the road again, holding on southwestwards for many a long and dusty day, till at last I reach the little grey sea town I know so well that clings along one steep side of the harbour. There, through dark doorways, you look down flights of stone steps, overhung by great pink tufts of valerian and ending in a patch of sparkling blue water. The little boats that lie tethered to the rings and stanchions of the old sea wall are gaily painted as those I clambered in and out of in my own childhood. The salmon leap on the flood tide, schools of mackerel flash and play past quaysides and foreshores, and by the windows the great vessels glide night and day up to their moorings or forth to the open sea. There, sooner or later, the ships of all seafaring nations arrive, and there, at its destined hour, the ship of my choice will let go its anchor. I shall take my time, I shall tarry and bide, till at last the right one lies waiting for me, warped out into midstream, loaded low, her bowsprit pointing down harbour. I shall slip on board by boat or a long hawser, and then one morning I shall wake to the song and tramp of the sailors, the clink of the capstan, and the rattle of the anchor chain coming merrily in. We shall break out the jib and the foresail. The white houses of the harbour side will glide slowly past us as she gathers steering way, and the voyage will have begun. As she forges towards the headland, she will clothe herself with canvas, and then, once outside, the sounding slap of great green seas as she heels to the wind, pointing south. And you, you will come too, young brother, for the days pass and never return, and the south still waits for you. Take the adventure, heed the call, now ere the irrevocable moment passes. Tis but a banging of the door behind you, a blithesome step forward, and you are out of the old life and into the new. Then some day, some day long hence, jog home here if you will, when the cup has been drained and the play has been played, and sit down by your quiet river with a store of goodly memories for company. You can easily overtake me on the road, for you are young, and I am aging and go softly. I will linger and look back, and at last I will surely see you coming, eager and light-hearted, with all the south in your face. The voice died away and ceased as an insect's tiny trumpet dwindles swiftly into silence. And the water rat, paralyzed and staring, saw at last but a distant speck on the white surface of the road. Mechanically, he rose and proceeded to repack the luncheon basket carefully and without haste. Mechanically, he returned home, gathered together a few small necessaries and special treasures he was fond of, and put them in a satchel acting with slow deliberation, moving about the room like a sleepwalker, listening ever with parted lips. He swung the satchel over his shoulder, carefully selected a stout stick for his wayfaring, and with no haste, but with no hesitation at all, 
he stepped across the threshold just as the mole appeared at the door. Why, where are you off to, Ratty? asked the mole in great surprise, grasping him by the arm. Going south with the rest of them, murmured the rat in a dreamy monotone, never looking at him. Seawards first, and then on shipboard, and so to the shores that are calling me. He pressed resolutely forward, still without haste, but with a dogged fixity of purpose. But the mole, now thoroughly alarmed, placed himself in front of him, and looking into his eyes, saw that they were glazed and set, and turned a streaked and shifting grey. Not his friend's eyes, but the eyes of some other animal. Grappling with him strongly, he dragged him inside, threw him down, and held him. The rat struggled desperately for a few moments, and then his strength seemed suddenly to leave him, and he lay still and exhausted, with closed eyes, trembling. Presently the mole assisted him to rise and placed him in a chair, where he sat collapsed and shrunken into himself, his body shaken by a violent shivering, passing in time into a hysterical fit of dry sobbing. Mole made the door fast, threw the satchel into a drawer, and locked it, and sat down quietly on the table by his friend, waiting for the strange moment to pass. Gradually, the rat sank into a troubled doze, broken by starts and confused murmurings of things strange and wild and foreign to the unenlightened mole, and from that he passed into a deep slumber. Very anxious in mind, the mole left him for a time and busied himself with household matters, and it was getting dark when he returned to the parlour and found the rat where he'd left him, wide awake indeed, but listless, silent and dejected. He took one hasty glance at his eyes, found them, to his great gratification, clear and dark and brown again as before, and then sat down and tried to cheer him up and help him to relate what had happened to him. Poor Ratty did his best by degrees to explain things, but how could he put into cold words what had mostly been suggestion? How recall, for another's benefit, the haunting sea voices that had sung to him? How reproduce at second hand the magic of the seafarer's hundred reminiscences? Even to himself, now the spell was broken and the glamour gone, he found it difficult to account for what had happened some hours ago, the inevitable and only thing. It is not surprising then that he failed to convey to the mole any clear idea of what he had been through that day. To the mole, this much was plain. The moment had passed away and had left him sane again, though shaken and cast down by the reaction. But he seemed to have lost all interest for a time in the things that went to make up his daily life, as well as in all pleasant forecastings of the altered days and doings that the changing season was surely bringing. Casually then, and with seeming difference, the mole turned his talk to the harvest that was being gathered in the towering wagons and their straining teams, the growing ricks and the large moon rising over bare acres dotted with sheaves. He talked of the reddening apples around, of the browning nuts, of jams and preserves, and the distilling of cordials, till by easy stages such as these he reached midwinter, its hearty joys and its snug home life, and then he became simply lyrical. By degrees the rat began to sit up, to join in. His dull eye brightened and he lost some of his listening air. 
Presently, the tactful mole slipped away and returned with a pencil and a few half-sheets of paper, which he placed on the table at his friend's elbow. It's quite a long time since you did any poetry, he remarked. You might have a try at it this evening, instead of, well, brooding over things so much. I have an idea that you'll feel a lot better when you've got something jotted down, if it's only just the rhymes. The rat pushed the paper away from him warily, but the discreet mole took occasion to leave the room, and when he peeped in again some time later, the rat was absorbed and deaf to the world, alternately scribbling and sucking the top of his pencil. It is true that he sucked a good deal more than he scribbled, but it was joy to the mole to know that the cure had begun at last. Chapter 10 The Further Adventures of Toad The front door of the hollow tree faced eastwards, so Toad was called at an early hour, partly by the bright sunlight streaming in on him, partly by the exceeding coldness of his toes, which made him dream that he was at home in bed in his own handsome room with a Tudor window on a cold winter's night, and his bedclothes had got up, grumbling and protesting they couldn't stand the cold any longer and had run downstairs to the kitchen fire to warm themselves, and he had followed, on bare feet, along miles and miles of icy, stone-paved passages, arguing and beseeching them to be reasonable. He would probably have been aroused much earlier had he not slept for some weeks on straw over stone flags, and almost forgotten the friendly feeling of thick blankets pulled well up round the chin. Sitting up, he rubbed his eyes first and his complaining toes next, wandered for a moment where he was, looking round for a familiar stone wall and little barred window. Then, with a leap of the heart, remembered everything, his escape, his flight, his pursuit, remembered first and best thing of all, that he was free. Free. The word and the thought alone were worth fifty blankets. He was warm from end to end as he thought of the jolly world outside, waiting eagerly for him to make his triumphal entrance, ready to serve him and play up to him, anxious to help him and to keep him company, as it always had been in days of old before misfortune fell upon him. He shook himself and combed the dry leaves out of his hair with his fingers, and his toilet complete, marched forth into the comfortable morning sun, cold but confident hungry but hopeful, all nervous terrors of yesterday dispelled by rest and sleep and frank and heartening sunshine. He had the world all to himself that early summer morning. The dewy woodland, as he threaded it, was solitary and still. The green fields that succeeded the trees were his own to do as he liked with. The road itself, when he reached it, and that loneliness that was everywhere, seemed like a stray dog to be looking anxiously for company. Toad, however, was looking for something that could talk and tell him clearly which way he ought to go. It is all very well when you have a light heart and a clear conscience and money in your pocket and nobody scouring the country for you to drag you off to prison again to follow where the road beckons and points, not caring whither. The practical Toad cared very much indeed and he could have kicked the road for its helpless silence when every minute was of importance to him. The reserved rustic road was presently joined by a shy little brother in the shape of a canal, 
which took its hand and ambled along by its side in perfect confidence, but with the same tongue-tied, uncommunicative attitude towards strangers. Bother them, said Toe to himself. But anyhow, one thing's clear. They must both be coming from somewhere and going to somewhere. You can't get over that, Toad, my boy. So he marched on patiently by the water's edge. Round a bend in the canal came plodding a solitary horse, stooping forward as if in anxious thought. From rope traces attached to its collar stretched a long line, taut, but dipping with his stride, the further part of it dripping pearly drops. Toad let the horse pass and stood waiting for what the fates were sending him. With a pleasant swirl of quiet water at its blunt bow, the barge slid up alongside of him, its gaily painted gunwale level with the towing path, its sole occupant, a big stout woman wearing a linen sunbonnet, one brawny arm laid along the tiller. A nice morning, ma'am, she remarked to Toad as she drew up level with him. I dare say it is, ma'am, responded Toad politely as he walked along the towpath abreast of her. I dare say it is a nice morning to them that's not in sore trouble, like what I am. Here's my married daughter. She sends off to me post-haste to come to her at once. So off I comes, not knowing what may be happening or going to happen, but fearing the worst, as you will understand, ma'am, if you're mother too. And I've left my business to look after her. I'm in the washing and laundering line, you must know, ma'am. And I've left my young children to look after themselves and a more mischievous and troublesome set of young imps doesn't exist, ma'am. And I've lost all my money, and I've lost my way. And as for what may be happening to my married daughter, why, I don't like to think of it, ma'am. Where might your married daughter be living, ma'am? asked the bargewoman. She lives near to the river, ma'am, replied Toad, close to a fine house called Toad Hall, that's somewhere as hereabouts in these parts. Perhaps you may have heard of it. Toad Hall? Why, I'm going that way myself, replied the bargewoman. This canal joins the river some miles further on, a little above Toad Hall, and then it's an easy walk. You can come along in the barge with me, and I'll give you a lift. She steered the barge close to the bank, and Toad, with many humble and grateful acknowledgments, stepped lightly on board and sat down with great satisfaction. Toad's luck again, thought he. I always come out on top. So you're in the washing business, ma'am, said the bargewoman politely as he glided along. And a very good business you've got too, I dare say, if I'm not making too free in saying so. Finest business in the whole country, said Toad airily. All the gentry come to me. Won't go to anyone else if they were paid. They know me so well. You see, I understand my work thoroughly and attend to it all myself. Washing, ironing, clear starching, making up gents' fine shirts for evening wear. Everything's done under my own eye. But surely you don't do all that work yourself, ma'am, asked the bargewoman respectfully. Oh, I have girls, said Toad lightly. Twenty girls or thereabouts, always at work. But you know what girls are, ma'am. Nasty little hussies, that's what I call them. So do I too, said the bargewoman with great heartiness. But I dare say you set yours to rights, the idle trollops. And are you very fond of washing? I love it, said Toad. I simply dote on it. Never so happy as when I've got both arms in the wash tub. But then, it comes so easy to me. No trouble at all. A real pleasure, I assure you, ma'am. 
What a bit of luck meeting you, observed the bargewoman thoughtfully. A regular piece of good fortune for both of us. Why, what do you mean? asked Toad nervously. Well, look at me now, replied the bargewoman. I like washing too, just the same as you do. And for that matter, whether I like it or not, I've got to do all my own, naturally, moving about as I do. Now my husband, he's such a fellow for shirking his work and leaving the barge to me, that never a moment do I get for seeing to my own affairs. By rights, he ought to be here now, either staring or attending to the horse. Though luckily, the horse has sense enough to attend to himself. Instead of which, he's gone off with the dog to see if they can't pick up a rabbit for dinner somewhere. Says he'll catch me up at the next lock. Well, that's as may be. I don't trust him. Once he gets off of that dog, who's worse than he is? But meantime, how am I to get on with my washing? Oh, never mind about the washing, said Toad, not liking the subject. Try and fix your mind on that rabbit. A nice, fat, young rabbit, I'll be bound. Got any onions? I can't fix my mind on anything but my washing, said the bargewoman. And I wonder you can be talking of rabbits with such a joyful prospect before you. There's a heap of things of mine that you'll find in a corner of the cabin. If you'll just take one or two of the most necessary sort, I won't venture to describe them to a lady like you, but you'll recognize them at a glance. And put them through the washing tub as we go along. Why? It'll be a pleasure to you, as you rightly say, and a real help to me. You'll find a tub handy and soap and a kettle on the stove and a bucket to haul up water from the canal with. Then I shall know you're enjoying yourself instead of sitting here idle, looking at the scenery and yawning your head off. Here, you let me stare, said Toad, now thoroughly frightened, and then you can get on with your washing your own way. I might spoil your things or not do them as you like. I'm more used to gentlemen's things myself. It's my special line. Let you stare, replied the bargewoman laughing. It takes some practice to stare a barge properly. Besides, it's dull work, and I want you to be happy. Now you shall do the washing you're so fond of, and I'll stick to the staring that I understand. Don't try and deprive me of the pleasure of giving you a treat. Toad was fairly cornered. He looked for escape this way and that, saw that he was too far from the bank for a flying leap, and sullenly resigned himself to his fate. If it comes to that, he thought in desperation, I suppose any fool can wash. He fetched tub, soap, and other necessaries from the cabin, selected a few garments at random, tried to recollect what he had seen in casual glances through laundry windows, and set to. A long half-hour passed, and every minute of it saw Toad getting crosser and crosser. Nothing that he could do to the things seemed to please them or do them good. He tried coaxing, he tried slapping, he tried punching. They smiled back at him out of the tub, unconverted, happy in their original sin. Once or twice he looked nervously over his shoulder at the bargewoman, but she appeared to be gazing out in front of her, absorbed in her staring. His back ached badly, and he noticed with dismay that his paws were beginning to get all crinkly. Now Toad was very proud of his paws. He muttered under his breath words that should never pass the lips of either washerwoman or Toad's, and he lost the soap for the fiftieth time. A burst of laughter made him straighten himself and look around. 
The barge woman was leaning back and laughing unrestrainedly till the tears ran down her cheeks. I've been watching you all the time, she gasped. I thought you must be a humbug all along from the conceited way you talked. Pretty washerwoman you are. Never washed so much as a dishcloth in your life, I'll lay. Toad's temper, which had been simmering viciously for some time, now fairly boiled over, and he lost all control of himself. You common, low, bargewoman, he shouted. Don't you dare to talk to your betters like that. Washerwoman, indeed. I would have you to know that I am a toad, a very well-known, respected, distinguished toad. I may be under a bit of a cloud at present, but I will not be laughed at by a bargewoman. The woman moved nearer to him and peered under his bonnet keenly and closely. Why, so you are, she cried. Well, I never. A horrid, nasty, crawly toad. And in my nice clean barge, too. Now that is a thing I will not have. She relinquished the tiller for a moment. One big mottled arm shot out and caught Toad by a foreleg, while the other gripped him fast by a hind leg. Then the world turned suddenly upside down. The barge seemed to flit lightly across the sky. The wind whistled in his ears, and Toad found himself flying through the air, revolving rapidly as he went. The water, when he eventually reached it with a loud splash, proved quite cold enough for his taste, though its chill was not sufficient to quell his proud spirit or slake the heat of his furious temper. He rose to the surface, spluttering, and when he had wiped the duckweed out of his eyes, the first thing he saw was the bargewoman looking back at him over the stern of the retreating barge and laughing, and he vowed, as he coughed and choked, to be even with her. He struck out for the shore, but the cotton gown greatly impeded his efforts, and when at length he touched land, he found it hard to climb up the steep bank unassisted. He had to take a minute or two's rest to recover his breath. Then, gathering his wet skirts well over his arms, he started to run after the barge as fast as his legs could carry him, wild with indignation, thirsting for revenge. The bargewoman was still laughing when he drew up level with her. Put yourself through your mangle, washerwoman, she called out, and iron your face and crimp it, and you'll pass for quite a decent-looking toad. Toad never paused to reply. Solid revenge was what he wanted, not cheap, windy, verbal triumphs, though he had a thing or two in his mind that he would have liked to say. He saw what he wanted ahead of him. Running swiftly on, he overtook the horse, unfastened the tow rope and cast off, jumped lightly on the horse's back, and urged it to a gallop by kicking it vigorously in the sides. He stared for the open country, abandoning the towpath, and swinging his steed down a rutty lane. Once he looked back, and saw that the barge had run aground on the other side of the canal, and the bargewoman was gesticulating wildly and shouting, Stop! 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 I've heard that song before, said Toad, laughing, as he continued to spur his steed onward in its wild career. The barge horse was not capable of any very sustained effort, and its gallop soon subsided into a trot, and its trot into an easy walk. The toad was quite contented with this, knowing that he at any rate was moving and the barge was not. He had quite recovered his temper, now that he had done something he thought really clever, and he was satisfied to jog along quietly in the sun, staring his horse along byways and bridle paths, and trying to forget how long it was since he had had a square meal, 
till the canal had been left very far behind him. Good night. <laughs>